Ooh. Ooh, that was quick. Okay, a lull in the action. So, we can continue where we were talking on Friday. And we were talking about the individual classes of immunoglobulin. And we started with IgG, because IgG is the stereotypical immunoglobulin, 150,000 molecular weight, 80% of immunoglobulin is gonna be IgG. It's about at 11 milligrams, and it's the predominant immunoglobulin in serum. We have those four subclasses, the stability of IgG. We talked about complement fixation, and we're gonna put that away because we'll talk about complement next week. It's able to cross to placenta. IgG can protect the developing fetus. And we talked about individual receptors on phagocytic cells for monomeric IgG, uh, monomeric IgG and on neutrophils, right, for those immune complexes. So next stop on the IgG hit parade is IgM. And IgM is 900,000 molecular weight. So first thing you're saying is, hey, wait a minute, you lied to me. You said all immunoglobulins are 150,000 molecular weight. And this right, will introduce my lying phase to the class. I will occasionally lie to you by telling you things that make the lecture flow a little better, but I promise I will always tell you when I'm lying to you, and then I will always tell you, or I will always reveal the reason behind the lie. Right? This will be revealed. All will be revealed. All right, so IgM, right? It's less than IgG. It's at about 10%. And again, right, it's about 10 times less. It's at about a milligram per ml. So it's pretty good size in terms of the concentration in the blood. It's the most conserved of the immunoglobulin molecules, right? Antibodies to IgM are very reactive across species. So again, if we're talking about hemoglobin, and injecting it into that rabbit, right, a common sort of a protein. If I take human hemoglobin and inject it into the rabbit, yes, the rabbit's immune system will recognize it because it's foreign. Yeah, it'll have a pretty good response, but there are things we'll have to do, like getting adjuvants to make the response a little bit better. But if I took human IgM and injected it into that rabbit, then we'd have a very robust response, right, because it's very well conserved in between species. The other thing about IgM, it's going to be the first class of immunoglobulin that's going to be produced during the immune response and also by the neonate. Right? As the immune system comes online, once the baby is born and it's exposed, the baby is going to be born to new and, right, new and exciting antigens. IgM is going to be the first one to come online. And even as we get older, and even today, if we're going to come into contact with an antigen or to a pathogen, IgM is going to be the first one that's going to be produced. Okay, and we'll talk about how we're going to get from IgM to IgG and all the other ones. It's fascinating molecular biology, but that'll be basically after the first test or so. All right, so what do we know about IgM? Well, the first thing we know is that it's found as a pentameric unit, right? The lie is revealed, right? So there are five identical subunits, and each of them is about 180,000 molecular weight, and we'll talk about why each one is 180,000 molecular weight instead of the 150,000 molecular weight that it should be. Right? So it's five identical subunits of monomeric IgM. 
Right? So here's IgM. Looks very much like that IgG we were looking at before, only right, it's bound together, this pentameric shape. There are five, well, pentameric five. Okay. It also contains another molecule that's called the J chain. The J chain is for joining chain or joining molecule. And the joining molecule has extra disulfide bonds that bind to the constant region of those five monomeric IgMs, right, and sort of riveted them all together. So again, right, we're looking at this one-dimensional sort of look and they're sort of showing the J chain in here. But you got to remember, right, that the J chain is sort of connecting all these things together so that it, right, one, two, three, oh, five. So that when IgM sits there, it sort of sits like this, right, with the J chain down here and the FAB region of IgM out here. Right? So when you look at it in a three-dimensional form, the J chain is being, is joining right, all of these monomeric units. The J chain, right, it's a part of IgM and IgA. So, right, that should tell us that IgA is going to be a little bit different than the 150,000 molecular weight stereotypical moly, and we'll get to that in a minute. It's about 15,000 molecular weight. Again, it's a glycoprotein. We've got lots of glycoproteins. And it has a high content of neg negatively charged amino acids to interact with the positive charged amino acids in the constant region of, IG of that monomeric IgM. And it also has a whole bunch of cysteine residues, right? At eight cysteine residues, so it can be involved in those disulfide bonds. So IgG holds that IgM all together so that IgM can fulfill its biological function. So, the thing about IgM and specifically the, the mu heavy chain, right, the, the, the heavy chain of IgM, is that it's 70,000 molecular weight because there's an additional constant domain. When we looked at IgG and we've been talking about immunoglobulin molecules, we said that there were three constant domains in one variable region in the heavy chain. In IgM, there's an additional constant. And this is where right, those additional cysteines are located that are going to bind to the J chain. The other thing about IgM is it really has no hinge region that we can talk about. Yeah, you know, it's joined together and, it's, and, and, the, and the relationship between the heavy chains are the same but there's not as much of a hinge region in IgM. There's a higher amount of carbohydrate, a little bit more. But the important thing about IgM, or probably the, the most important thing about IgM, that it's the major class that's on the surface of B cells. Right? And it is the antigen receptor. So this is an, an important sort of a, a concept for what we're talking about. So, I didn't really say it, and we'll talk about B cells next week, but B cells, or B lymphocytes, are the cells that make antibody molecules. And so far, this is all we know about antibody molecules, right? They're binding to epitopes on pathogens, right? That's our sort of our model right now. So where do they come from? Well, they're released by the B cells. How the B cells know to be able to release that, a particular immunoglobulin molecule. They do that 
because on the surface of this B cell sits monomeric IgM, right, membrane IgM, monomeric IgM, and this is the antigen receptor. So, previous to this happening, to these antibody molecules being released, right, and we can get all kinds of different, I don't do you know, my great artwork by showing all the antibody molecules that could be binding here, but we could have thousands of antibody molecules <laughs> binding to a particular B cell, and they can all be different antibody molecules, right? So prior to the release and binding of this or these immunoglobulin molecules, this B cell had to come into contact with this bacteria. And this, antibody and this antibody molecule on the surface is the antigen receptor. Once this B cell recognizes these epitopes, bless you, these epitopes on the surface, right, the B cell is going to become stimulated and it's going to start to release immunoglobulin molecules. And these immunoglobulin molecules are going to be this immunoglobulin molecule. So I'm sort of making this as IgG right now, but in Right? In, in reality, the first immunoglobulin that's going to be released will be this IgM molecule. Right? Now, this IgM molecule is basically this molecule right here. Right? So the B cell is going to be able to take this receptor, turn it into this secretory IgM molecule, and it's this, right? I should really, if we're talking about the first immunoglobulin molecules, Right? These should all be, I'm not going to sit here and do it, right? but these should all be IgM molecules. Eventually, this B cell will turn and start producing IgG molecules. But to begin with, right, this membrane immunoglobulin molecule, this antigen receptor right, is going to be able to recognize this as being a pathogen, as this as being a foreign, right, a foreign invader. It's going to be stimulated and it's going to start to release immunoglobulin molecules, right? So membrane immunoglobulin, IgM, monomeric IgM, is different than serum IgM, right? If it's a monomer, it's got a transmembrane portion, it's got a cytoplasmic region, right? And it's going to be different than secreted immunoglobulin or secreted IgM, all right? But this is probably the most important function of IgM itself. At some point in time on the surface of B cells, and it's not necessarily when we're interacting like this, and we're not going to do anything like this, and we're not going to do anything like this, right? But also on the surface of the B cell, can be IgD. And we haven't talked about IgD yet, but if we're talking about right, uh, molecules on the surface of the B cell, the IgD molecule can be on the surface as well. That's usually going to happen during development of the B cell, right? As a B cell is in the bone marrow, differentiating from a, from a primitive B cell into a mature B cell, IgD is there to help that process along. We don't see much Ig. Well, you probably see IgD on the surface of the B cell, but we're really not sure what it's doing on a mature B cell. 
So this is a pretty important sort of concept that this same molecule right, that is binding to these foreign entities, and it could be the pathogens or the foreign macromolecules, are the same exact molecule on the surface of the B cell, and the recognition of the pathogen, the recognition of the foreign entity, is what gets the whole thing started. Right? We're going to talk about this again, one of, those, one of these things we're going to talk about for the rest of the semester. So this is IgM. Next on our hit parade is IgA. Oh, shoot. We're back to 150,000 molecular weight, but we know about the J chain, right? But it can be a polymer. We'll talk about it. It's pretty high, anywhere from 10 to 15 percent, two and a half milligrams per mil. So it's probably a little bit more than IgM. Let me talk about IgM second because it is so important, because it is the antigen receptor. So what's IgA doing? IgA is the predominant antibody in external secretions. Your tears, right, are full of IgA. Your tears protect your eyes. You have a lot of IgA in your saliva, a lot of IgA in your mucus, a lot of IgA in breast milk, right? It's the major immunoglobulin molecule that is going to be involved with protection, protecting ex external, uh, external, uh, right? external secretions. We need to be able to protect ourselves in areas that we're allowing pathogens to enter. We have nice skin all over our body. Right? Our skin is a nice protective layer. We'll talk about skin when we talk about nonspecific defenses, right? Skin is a, a, uh, a non-permeable layer, right? holds all of our body fluids in. We'd look really weird if we didn't have skin. All right? We could protect ourselves if we had our skin and then we never let anything else in. Right? If we closed our mouths, if we closed our noses, and we closed our eyes, and we closed all of our other body cavities, right? we would be protected our skin could protect us. We would last, I don't know, how long can you hold your breath? A minute? Right? We'd last about a minute. Every time you breathe, right, you don't think about this so much, every time you breathe, you're allowing pathogens to enter. You know that happens because when you're sitting on that tea that day and somebody sneezes and you breathe it in, then you're sick. Then, well, you don't have to be, but there's a good, good chance you're going to be sick the next day. Right? So if we didn't breathe, we would be protected. Right? We wouldn't need our mucus. We wouldn't need our IgA in our mucus. If we didn't eat, we would be protected. Right? A couple of minutes after this lecture, maybe you'll go have some lunch. Maybe you'll take a nice big bite out of that apple. Right? How many bacteria? I don't care how good you wash that apple. How many bacteria are sitting on that apple? Right? You're inviting those bacteria in. Clearly, we could protect against that if we didn't eat anymore. How long could we last? Well, I could probably last two hours if I didn't eat anymore. But in general, right, 
what, would we, it would take a week? People, when people go on hunger strikes, when do they wait? After a couple of weeks? So we could prevent all of it, but we can't. So we need a way to protect ourselves. And this, we, we got a whole bunch of nonspecific defense mechanisms that we'll talk about, but in terms of specific immunity, in terms of antibody-mediated immunity, IgA is our man or girl, okay? 80% of IgA in serum is monomeric IgA, right? Looks just like that stereotypical IgG molecule we've been talking about. So forget about the J chain, right? We're back to our three constant regions, right? In the heavy chain, we're talking, right? We're back with our hinge region. So at 150,000 molecular weight, monomeric IgA. We also have secretory IgA, and the secretory IgA, that's the major one, right? Tear, saliva, breast milk. It's the dimeric form of IgA, and it's held together by the J chain. Secretory IgA also contains the secretory component. That makes, right, that makes regular monomeric and, and polymeric IgA different than secretory IgA because of the secretory component. It's about 70,000 molecular weight. Again, it's a very glycosylated, it's another glycoprotein. It's a member of the immunoglobulin supergene family. So it's, it has that immunoglobulin fold, right, that bulging 60 amino acids held together by the cysteines. It's called the poly-IG receptor on the submucosal side of most mucosal epithelial cells. Yike, right? Let's, let's sort of break that one down. So let's look, at, let's look at IgA. So here's our IgA, here's our dimeric IgA with the secretory component being a part of it, right? So this is secretory IgA. Right? When it's released, it could be either monomeric in serum or dimeric. When we need to be able to secrete it, it's secretory IgA. So, why do we need the J-chain and what's so important about the J-chain? So let's just look at a typical sort of barrier tissue right here. This is either going to be, right, your intestine, let's say, or your tear duct, right, or, or, or breast ducts. So here is, right, sort of the inside that's going to be uh, exposed to the world, right, the luminal side of these epithelial cells. So this is the lining, not the lining, this is the interior of the intestine, and here's the exterior of, in, of the intestine, right, the submucosal side. So this is all your tissue spaces out here. Uh, not your t this, <laughs> these are all your tissues out here. Right? So these epithelial cells are going to act as a barrier. And you know, they're pretty good. They're held together by, right, by all the proteins that hold cells together. And we need to move, right, this IgA, this dimeric IgA now, right, we need to secrete it out into the tear ducts. So the tear, right, so they'll be part of, of, of your tears. We need to move them out into the small intestine. Right, so how are we going to do that? Clearly, right, we're not going to open up a space here. We're not going to relax these epithelial cells and just allow proteins to go shooting out into the luminal side we need to protect the luminal side because right, we have all of our acids and all of our bacteria and everything else because anything that's going to go out into the luminal side is absolutely going to be able to go back into the submucosal side. So we need a way to traffic proteins right, 
from where they're being manufactured. And here's a B cell manufacturing IgA. Right? And we need to bring that IgA through the epithelial cell and out into the lumen. Right? And it's got to be a one-way passage. So think about this situation right here. Well, that's really not a good way to think. Well, all right. Think about this as a revolving door. Or, well, that's not a good way to think about it either. Think about, think about when you go to a big box store like Home Depot. Right? You always have that, you have that big old wide opening, right, the doorway, and there's always a door to the, to the right-hand side. Or when you go into that revolving door, there's always the revolving door or a door right into the building. If you use the door to go right into the building, people can come in and people can go out. Now, I know you're going to say, oh, you've got a revolving door, people can come in and out too. But it's more controlled. So that door right, is something that we don't need here. Here we need that revolving door, right? We need someone to enter on one side, to revolve around for a while, and then enter on, and then leave on the other side. Or when you go into Home Depot, Right now, right nowadays, it's hot outside, and the air conditioner sits there, so they have that curtain of air right, that sort of comes down on you. So when you walk inside, that separates the inside of Home Depot from the outside of Home Depot. Later on, when it gets to be cold air outside, they're blowing heated air across the doorway, so that when you go across the doorway, you come in, right? So you're being protected. The same thing has to happen here, and this is where Right? That secretory component comes in. So out here, the secretory component is a part of IgA, but over here, the secretory component in its life before IgA is called the poly-IG receptor. It's a cell surface molecule, sits on the external surface of these epithelial cells, and it's going to bind to IgA. Binds to IgA, and invagination takes place, now we have a vesicle inside, right? Here's our revolving door now, right? So we've sealed off this side, right? Once IgA binds, we go out, right? By endocytosis, we bring it inside. Now it's sort of protected in here, right? It can go wherever it wants. And now it's gonna transverse these epithelial cells. An enzyme's gonna come in, right? a protease will cleave it, it's now not part of the membrane anymore. We're going to open up on this side and we're going to release secretory IgA. We've brought it across. We need it to go where it's needed. And we didn't, right, bother, and we didn't get in the way of the integrity of this barrier, of these membranes at all. Bless you. Right? A lot of proteins can move this way across. We're just looking here about IgA. Right? So that's how it's going to get out here. Question. Well, let's, this is the poly-IG receptor right here, right? So right here, whoops, is the membrane-bound portion, right? Because over here, right, like any other membrane protein, there's a, there's a transmembrane domain and a cytoplasmic domain. So here it still is over here. When it gets to here, right, let's just say it clips off this end piece over here. This is still part of the part that's held onto the membrane and allows it to, f to be free now. Vesicle opens up, it's secreted onto the other side. So that's how IgA is going to get out there. Uh, okay, poly-IG. So, 
IgA molecules are, again, are found in a lot of different places. One of the major places it's going to be found is in the intestine. Inside the intestine, right, 90% is secretory IgA, and it's going to protect us against oral antigens. In this war that goes back and forth, right, between the prokaryotes and the eukaryotes, right, the prokaryotes have figured out certain things. One of the things they've, they've figured out, a certain species have figured out, is how to protect themselves from our stomach acid. I'm an immunologist. I look at stomach acid as a protection barrier. Everybody else in the world looks at it as a breakdown of proteins, right? The, the major, the first, well, the second step, right? The first step is getting food wet as using your saliva to come inside. The second step is to start breaking it down in the acid of the stomach. A lot of bacteria are destroyed in the, in the acid of stomach, and in the acid in our stomach as well, but sometimes they can make their way through. Once they make their way through and now they're inside the intestine, we have to be able to deal with them. That's where IgA comes from. We have these large sort of clusters of B lymphocytes in our intestine that are called Peyer's patches. And again, first discovered by Dr. Peyer. So, names them after himself. These are Peyer's patches. And if you look along the intestine, you can see lots and lots and lots of B cells that are just congregating along the edge. And they run the whole length of our small intestine. Not so much in the large intestine anymore, because we really don't care about the large intestine, right? All the, all the real business of digestion takes care in the, in the, in the small intestine. There are about, right, two times 10 to the 10th IgA secreting cells in the small intestine. Where are my math majors? What's 10 to the 10th? Hundreds of billions? Right? That's like Bill Gates money. Right? So we got lots and lots and lots of B cells that line our intestine, and they're just constantly dumping IgA into our intestine, right? protecting us from the antigens that we need, that we're inviting in. Right? So every day, Right? We are secreting anywhere from 5 to 15 grams of secretory IgA in our mucus. Right? 5 grams. Right? Where are my chemistry majors? How many, how many molecules is that? Right? I take Avogadro's number right, and I multiply it by, I don't know, something, and Avogadro's number is 5 times 10 to the 23rd, right? At least it was when I took, how much is it? Everybody said it at once. This okay. It's a lot, right? So, five grams, right? Everybody have a good idea of what a gram is? Right? You take one of those sugar packs, that's a gram. Take five of them, right? That's that's minimum of what we secrete, right? So that's a lot of Avogadro's numbers worth of molecules that we are secreting at any one point in time. It shows you how important IgA is, right, to protection on a day-to-day -day basis. So, IgA, it has some extra cysteine residues, right, in the, in the alpha heavy chain, right, doesn't have an extra domain, it just has extra cysteines in there, and again, that's so it can come and interact with the J chain, right, to go from monomeric IgA 
to dimeric IgA, which is probably going to be, right, most of the time turned into secretory IgA. So we got lots and lots and lots of protection along our intestine. Okay, next up, IgD. Again, sort of for, uh, fulfills our criteria, 170,000 molecular weight. We are way, way, way low now, right? Before we were talking about grams worth, now we're to micrograms, or we're talking about milligrams, now we're at micrograms, we're a thousand times less. Only 0.2% of immunoglobulin in the blood at any one point in time is IgD. Right. Took IgD, took us a while to, to even know about Ig, IgD, because it's very susceptible to plasmin proteolysis and it's heat sensitive. It's hard to isolate. Remember we talked about IgG and we talked about all those disulfide bonds, right, and holding it together and being very stable. But IgD is a little bit different. It's very sensitive to heat. Right, and plasmin proteolysis. Plasmin is the major protease that's involved in the coagulation cascade. Right, it's how you clot. Right, we're going to turn Right, we're going to take plasminogen activator, and it's, going to tur and it's going to turn on plasmin, and then plasmin is going to be involved with sequential protease reactions that will eventually terminate in right, blood clots. Right, that's why when you cut yourself, you don't bleed to death. Right, so every time plasmin is active, uh, some IgD is going to be destroyed. So that's why we don't have, it was hard to isolate it for a while. It has the largest hinge region. Why? We have no, right? 67 amino acids. We saw that where IgG, the gamma 2 subclass, had a pretty big hinge region. The IgD hinge region is massive, right? 67 amino acids. Why that is, we have no idea. It can be found on membrane, right? It can be found in a membrane form on a B cell, only at certain times of the B cell's lives. Again, why it's there, we really don't have a good handle on that, but it can be found on the membrane of the B cell. And its function is really unknown. We know, right, circulating IgD can bind to myeloid cells, right, certain white blood cells, right? It can induce antimicrobial, inflammatory, B cell stimulating factors. But in general, we don't know what it does. We have this list of activities, but in the big picture, you know, yes, these things are important to defense, right? Antimicrobial, inflammatory things, but in general, we don't know what IgD does. Right. Last up, IgE, 180,000 molecular weight, 0.3 micrograms per mL. Don't even have a percentage in the bloodstream because right, the percentage would be very, very small. And so this is even 10 times less than IgD. Important thing about IgE is, right, and everybody in here probably has some sort of familiarity with IgE, it mediates allergic reactions. If anybody's sneezing in here because of goldenrod that's out there, right? Goldenrod came out about three weeks ago or so. If anybody's sneezing, you have IgE to thank, right? IgE is the, is the allergy immunoglobulin. 
It's going to mediate it by binding right, to IgEFC receptors on mast cells and basophils. Mast cells and basophils are different white blood cells. And when it binds to these mast cells and these basophils, these cells are going to be able to release right, mediators. The, right, the heavy chain, 72,000 molecular weight, doesn't have a hinge region, so it's sort of like IgM. And like IgM, it has an extra constant domain. So it's a little bit more like IgM than it is to anything else. And what that relationship is and how it formed, we really don't know. IgE is really, really sensitive to heat. Right? And because there was such a small percentage in the bloodstream, and because it is so sensitive to heat, we didn't know about IgE until the, the 1960s or so. When we cross-link the receptors on the mast cells and the basophils, that's going to be involved in the release of the mediators from these cells. So right, these mast cells are going to be able to bind to IgE. When you come into contact with the allergen again, right, the first time you come into contact with the allergen, for some reason, we're really not sure why, IgE is turned on and released. IgE then binds to FC receptors on the surface of the mast cell. When you come into contact with the allergen again, right, cross-linking and the release of the mediators is going to take place. And that's when you're going to get, oh, I'll sound like an advertisement, the watery eyes and the stuffy nose right, and all those different things based on those mediators. We'll talk about how and why those mediators work when we talk about mediators later on. Right? So. We look at those things that are causing allergy, and they have a special name, right? They're called allergens. Instead of calling them antigens, we're going to call them allergens, because they are the specific antigens for IgE. We're sort of tracking down what makes something an allergen and not an antigen, but we really don't have a good we don't really have a good explanation for that either, right? Why something would induce IgM and IgG and why something would induce IgE. So we're looking for sort of common characteristics, right? And if you think about your major sort of allergens, we're looking at the common characteristics between, I don't know, shellfish and peanuts. Right? I mean, that's a, <laughs> it's a long evolutionary distance there, but people are trying to figure out some sort of common identity between all the allergens. If we did, then we could run every single protein that we know about through, this, through a database, right? And we could have all sorts of all right, algorithms sort of figuring out what's going to be an allergen and what's not going to be an allergen. Okay? So we'll talk more about IgE when we start talking about right, allergy reactions later on in the semester. Okay, that's where we should have been on Friday. So, welcome to Monday. All right. So we got a pretty good idea about what makes an antigen, right? Some large, easily broken down protein molecule, right? We sort of have a good idea about uh, an antibody itself, right? Five classes, five different families, going to bind to epitopes, going to be able to recognize specific epitopes going to be secreted by B cells after that B cell recognizes right, those epitopes or those foreign epitopes via 
the antigen receptor, which is that membrane or that monomeric IgM sitting on the surface of the B cell. Okay. Let's look more now about interactions between antigens and antibodies. Okay. The first thing we're going to look at or talk about is the affinity, okay. the binding strength between an antigen and an antibody. We're going to talk about the binding strength right between a single receptor site, and that's going to be maybe right one of the F one of the right FAB sites. We have two FAB sites, right? On the surface of an immunoglobulin molecule, we're only going to talk about that single interaction between that and the ligand, that antigenic determinant or that epitope. We're going to have all sorts of different interactions taking place here. If anybody is in biochemistry, right, and you studied first order sort of reactions between enzymes and catalysts, that's basically what we're talking about here, right? The binding strength. Now, that binding strength is going to be a combination of a whole lot of things. The first thing is that the three-dimensional structure is the most important thing. Right? The three-dimensional structure of the antigen and its ability to bind to those CDRs right, that are sitting in right, that FAB region. So that three-dimensional structure is important because right? once that interaction gets made, then all of these other forces are going to be involved. Right? So we can get hydrogen bonding, ionic binding, right? hydrophobic interactions between water molecules, right? van der Waals interactions. Right? So once that three-dimensional structure and that, or the three-dimensional structure or that epitope is recognized by the antibody, then these interactions are going to take place. And these interactions are going to be involved with the affinity or the specific binding or how well this antibody is going to stay bound to the antigen. Because that's going to be the most important part, right? How long is it going to stay bound to it? Right? How long is it going to stay in association? Right? The association constant or the affinity constant, the Ka, right? a quantitative measure of affinity. Right? I'm sure that you've all talked about affinity and Ka and association constants and affinity constants, right? A high affinity has less of a reversible reaction than a low affinity, right? So really, what are we talking about here? So, in the beginning, we had just an antigen and an antibody. And if that antigen and antibody or if that antibody is going to be able to recognize that antigen, it's going to be right. stepped to this part, right? to the antibody binding to that epitope, binding to that antigenic determinant. Right. So that's what this part is, right? the antigen-antibody complex. So here's our antigen-antibody complex right here, right? Well, right here. Involved with all those amino acids we were talking about, with the electron cloud, all that stuff, right? So that's K1. If, on the other hand, this isn't a good fit, if this antibody molecule can't really recognize that three dimensional structure of that epitope, antibody comes in, binds, falls right off. High affinity has less of a K2. Right? 
that has more of a K1, more driving this antigen and this antibody staying together in a stable antigen-antibody complex. Pretty straightforward. So really the Ka, the association constant, is the relationship between K1 and K2, right? Or the antigen-antibody complex staying together or breaking apart to be back to the antigen or the antibody. Pretty straightforward, and then we're going to be able to measure that in liters or mole. An antibody with a high affinity needs a lower amount of free antigen to be bound, right? Because it's going to be able to stay together. So what does it come down to, right? Remember, we, we talked about the three-dimensional structure. Once we have that three-dimensional structure and we have a pretty good fit, then all those other interactions with the van der Waals forces, right, and ionic bonds and things can take place. And now we have a very good fit. We have a stable antigen-antibody complex, right? So we have high attraction and low repulsion. If, on the other hand, we don't have a pretty good fit, right? We could have a little bit of attraction. We could have a little bit of repulsion, right? So we could have high repulsion or low attraction. So the affinity is the sum of all those attractive and all those repulsive forces. And if we get a good fit because of the three-dimensional structure, we get a high K1, we get a stable antigen-antibody complex that's being formed. And if we don't, if we have a high K2, right, because we're not going to be able to have any of those interactions, any of those ionic hydrogen bonds taking place, then this is going to basically fall apart then that's all that this equation shows us, right? We have high attractive forces, we have an antigen-antibody complex, right? Okay, I'm done with math. That's it. You, know, you didn't need, what's, what's calculus, math 153 or whatever, 130, whatever. This is all you need right here. This is as high as my math goes. <laughs> If I knew more math than this, I'd be teaching physics because I always wanted to be a physicist. Yep. What, down here? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, this just shows the antigen and the antibody broken apart, let's say, rather than come together. All right, I can move past my math, my math uh, problem. Okay, so how are we going to measure affinity? We can measure affinity pretty straightforwardly. <laughs> Right? We're going to measure affinity by doing what's called equilibrium dialysis. And equilibrium dialysis right, is an old sort of a method, but this is how it was first sort of come about. So what are we going to do? We're going to have a container here that's going to hold a liquid. We're going to have a semi-permeable membrane right in between. The semi-permeable membrane is going to allow diffusion to take place. Right? So things that are in high concentration are going to diffuse to places where that there's low concentration, right? That's the, that's the definition of diffusion, right? Going from high to low. It's sort of like osmosis, but osmosis is, deals with water. So what are we going to do? Here's our semi-permeable membrane right here, and it means it's a membrane that's going to allow things to flow back and forth across it. And we can set the size of that membrane. Right? We can set the size of the pores in that membrane. We can do different chemistry, right, in terms of making this to be able to allow different pore formation to take place. So let's say, in this experiment, 
we're going to set this pore size at, I don't know, 80,000. So anything that's 80,000 or less is going to be able to diffuse back and forth. And anything that's 80,000 or greater isn't going to be able because it's going to meet those pore sizes and it won't allow it to come through. So here we have in this example, here's our antigen. And our antigen is what? It's 50,000 molecular weight. So we start our stopwatch, right? We add our antigen to this side. We start our stopwatch. We stop our stopwatch at a certain time thereafter. And now we measure both sides of this membrane, of this, of this vessel. Right? So what do we see? This is what we see. So here's time. Time is arbitrary. It doesn't matter. Concentration, it doesn't matter. But we'll live with, let's say we look at most. So what are we looking at here? So in the beginning, this is everything is in the B side. right? So here's the stuff that's in B. Here's the stuff that's in A. We have nothing in the A side. And after a certain amount of time, Right? The B side, right? We start to get Brownian movement. Everything starts to maneuver back and forth, goes across. B starts to get lower. A starts to get higher. Right? This is the, 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 the time equals N. This is when we end the experiment. But if we had another container here, then you would see sort of like half and half or whatever. So more A, more of the antigen is coming into A, more of the antigen is leaving B until we come out here at 50-50. So now there's just as much antigen on the A side as there is on the B side. Pretty straightforward. Now let's put a little bit of difference to this. We're going to do the same exact experiment again, but now we're going to add antibody to the A side. That antibody in the A side is 150,000 molecular weight, so it's not going to be able to diffuse across. So antibody is going to stay on the A side. We're going to add the same antigen again. We're going to start our clock, and we're going to see what takes place. So what's going to take place? So again, we're looking at the ligand. So we had 100% ligand in, in, in the B side, 0% ligand in the A side. So again, okay, we're going to start to diffuse across. We're coming to some sort of equilibrium, only now it's going to be a little bit different. Right? If this antigen is capable of, if this antibody is capable of recognizing and binding to this antigen, it's going to tie up antigen over here. Right? So once that antigen diffuses across, comes into contact, can't come back across. So now we're getting less and less antigen in B. We're getting more and more antigen in A. And if we measure that, that'll tell us the amount of ligand that's going to be bound by the antibody. If this is a pretty good fit, right, we're going to get this pretty wide right here. If it's a bad fit, right, if it doesn't recognize it at all, we're going to see this. Right? If it recognizes it even better, we're going to expand out this part right over there. Because right? we have that ligand, we have that interacting. Yeah. I'm not going to answer Camtasia questions. All right, so, right, so we have this coming across. Right, so that's the experiment that we're looking at. Right, we're looking at equilibrium dialysis this way. All right. On the other hand, if we're not looking at affinity, we're looking at avidity. Okay, so avidity is going to be. Right, if we're looking at the difference between avidity and affinity going to be the strength of multivalent attachments of antibody populations 
to antigenic determinants themselves on the antigen. If we're looking at this bacteria, we have an unlimited amount of epitopes on that bacteria. Because we have an unlimited, well, we don't have a really unlimited, we have a certain limited because we have a certain range of, of amino acids on the surface of that epitope. So let's say we have three populations of antibodies with very low affinities. So we have some low affinities, but we're looking at different epitopes on the surface of that antigen. If we can combine them all, right, it turns into what's called a high avidity for the antigen. What do we have? A minute? All right, so stay with me. So, whoops. Here we have our high affinity antibodies binding to this bacteria, right, and they stay bound. So this is high affinity. On the other hand, with avidity, let's say this antibody binds and then it floats away. This antibody binds and then it floats away. This antibody binds and then it floats away. At any one point in time, because we have multiple antigenic determinants, this bacteria, if we're looking at avidity over here, will be bound by antibody molecules. Just because we don't have a high affinity antibody doesn't mean it's not going to work. As long as this is being coded, so when this one is floating off, this one comes in and binds, this one floats off, right? So you get this sort of this, this equilibrium that gets set up and it's still being bound by antibodies. So even though we don't have high affinity antibodies, we can still get that bacteria coded, right? It can still take place and sometimes avidity is more important than affinity because at least this bacteria is coded. All right, we will continue talking about this on Wednesday. Yeah? I would be able to make it to one lab, but I have a citizenship appointment at 12 o'clock. Well, if you decide.